Acts 15, once again today. Um, if I recall, it sticks in my mind that last time Sanders were here, we were in chapter 5 talking about Ananias and Sapphira. So we've made it 10 chapters in a year. That's pretty good. Uh, well, let's pray and then we'll go to God's Word. Our Father, cause us uh, as your church to be stabilized by your word. May we grow up every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. And may we be nourished and knit together. May we be built up that we might stand as the pillar and buttress of the truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we read, I had a few comments here. It's a bit of a different uh, sermon in that it's going to be a topical sermon on the topic of Presbyterian church polity. So try not to be too enthusiastic about that. Um, I've been planning to actually do this for a while uh, after we got done with the Jerusalem Council and, and in God's providence it landed on the same week I was talking about General Assembly and Sunday School and this is just a very Presbyterian Sunday. Um, but I feel like some explanations in order of why I would want to preach on this. Uh, First, I see it in the text, in, in especially chapters 14 and 15 and throughout Acts, but it's not the main point. So I didn't want to take diversions every time I saw it. I thought I'd just collect it all into to one sermon. Uh, secondly, uh, our church is a Presbyterian church, and we've been so formally for a few years now, and um, I think, but maybe none of us or few of us actually grew up in the Presbyterian church, and so I think it's good for us to understand our own church government. And finally, I think uh, when people use the word reformed, usually they mean uh, the doctrines of grace or something like that. But, but my idea of having a, a, a reformed church here thriving in 50 years is the more robust meaning of the term as an expression of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which includes Presbyterianism. And so I, I think it's good for us to understand this. I think it's biblical and helpful. Um, so my my hope is that um, not only I, not only the leadership, but the whole body would become enthusiastic about the way Christ has set up the government of his church. And, uh, you know, if you disagree with Presbyterianism, um, I'll pray for you. <laughs> now, I was talking to actually Brian, Brian Reedy yesterday, who who's, uh, was, was going to be sick. And I said, I'll miss you because I know he has different convictions about this. And I said, I want to hear the dissenting voices. I, I, I value that. So um, this is not like a Presbyterians only kind of Message, But I hope that it will be beneficial for you and that actually you'll walk away at least thinking that the Presbyterian brothers are a notch or two less crazy than you thought before. Um, so this is not going to be a defense or even a comprehensive overview. Uh, it's just a summary and, and in my hope, an edifying uh, presentation of this, this doctrine. So with that said, let's read the text. I'm going to read, I had Michael print the whole of chapter 15 for reference, or, or the whole Jerusalem Council section. But I'm going to read from 22 through uh, 29. So if we'll stand for that. This is the letter that was sent by the apostles and elders to the whole church, uh, dealing with the question of circumcision. Beginning in verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. 
They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth for it has seemed good to the Holy spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I count myself among those I mentioned that did not grow up Presbyterian. I grew up mostly in a community church that my dad pastored. Um, But my parents did. They grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, which was... um, essentially Presbyterian. Um, and really, they were truly discipled later when my dad was in grad school in Las Cruces in a PCA church. And so they had some of those convictions. Um, so I, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I'd say I grew up Presbyterian adjacent. Um, I went away to woodworking school after high school. I found myself in, a, in an OPC church while I was single. And I, I didn't really have a understanding of what that even meant and then kelly and i went to a, a big bible church for a while in lakewood and then a e3 church um, and so all that to say well i was growing during those years in various convictions about calvinism and, and those type of things um, i did not have much in the way of convictions about the way god governs his church when we moved back to westcliff and i started going to seminary my dad was pastoring the church we grew up in um, and we attended there, and then my dad ended up moving on. But we stayed, and we were very active during that time. And I, I served on the board, which didn't have really a concept of elders, but uh, on the board for most of that time while I was in seminary. And it was very formative because I was able to apply the things I was learning to a local church context. Um, it was during that time that church government became very important to me. And, uh, you know, we had our, our various squabbles about different doctrines and some of my convictions. But more than anything, I would say the reason I realized that I and the church were, were paddling in different directions had to do with this issue of how Christ governs his church. It became very important to me. I began to see the cracks and the flaws in the style of church government. And I began to see the extraordinary value of biblical church government and, and God and his kindness a little Reformed church with five elders was knocking on my door, and here we are. Um, I begin with that story because I believe, whether we realize it or not, the issue of church government is actually very practical. It touches our lives in ways we may not even realize. We, we, we could all tell our horror stories about uh, the domineering pastor who governed the church unilaterally, 
or of a congregation who unjustly fired their pastor or of infighting or, or elder boards that run the church like a business rather than the church or, or on and on we could go with different issues, right? And we realize many of the issues in our past with church that have been challenging touch on this issue of church government. So I, I say that to say it's, it's important. It may seem like a kind of out-of-the-way doctrine, but it is very important. Um, no system of government is perfect. Uh, the PCA's uh, expression of Presbyterianism is far from perfect. Our own eldership is far from perfect. Um, even our ideals are not always right, but we often fail to live up to our ideals even when they are right. But I make the simple contention, church government matters. The question of church government is not just for the leaders of the church, it's for everybody. So let's start out by briefly defining Presbyterianism. Uh, It's probably easiest to just begin by contrasting it against some other forms of church government. Um, So the question is, how shall we govern the church? Um, Some groups, such as uh, the, the Quakers, would say, well, we don't. We just listen to the Holy Spirit. On the other side, historically, uh, falling in line with a group called the Erastians, they would go to the other extreme and say the state determines how we govern our church. Uh, Episcopal form of government, represented in the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopal or Anglican Church, or the Methodists, have, have a top-down hierarchical uh, church government structure, uh, structure. So Roman Catholics have a pope, but none of the other groups do. But you go down from bishops to priests, and it's hierarchical. The top tells the bottom what to do. That's Episcopal. The one I think we're most familiar with is probably Congregationalism, uh, found in most Baptistic churches. Uh, this is where the governmental power is invested in the congregation. Uh, and it can take many forms. There's kind of the CEO model where uh, technically the congregation has the authority, but really the pastor has the authority. Um, some have a more Presbyterian model at the local level, but they remain unconnected from other bodies. They remain independent or on, autonomous. Um, and then Presbyterians uh, would say that the church is elder-led. Um, not just locally, but at a more broad level, that it's elder-led by a plurality, meaning more than one of elders who are all equal in status. Um, They're called by God and confirmed by the congregation to oversee and to shepherd the church. So Presbyterians say elders are called to govern the church. The word elder is in the Greek presbyteros. You can hear the word presbytery in there. That's where we get the word, um, which simply means elder. Another word used in the New Testament, episkopos, from which we get episcopal, um, is it, it means overseer. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, translated it bishop, which created this whole issue of bishops in a hierarchical structure. But really, it's best translated overseer. And that word episkopos, overseer, actually describes, it does, goes a long way in describing the duty of elders, which is to oversee the church. Now that word uh, oversee, it, it speaks of authority, which tends to give Americans hives, authority. 
This whole notion of authority cuts against our individualistic sensibilities. Don't tread on me, right? Tragically, I think this notion of authority in the church has been all but lost. People don't listen to the word of Christ through their minister or elders. It's more like, you know, Barbosa and the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more like guidelines than actual rules. The writer to the Hebrews has a different idea. Hebrews thirteen seventeen: obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey and submit. Those are strong words. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So the church officer has real authority. It's not merely a suggestions or advice. It's a position of authority. We see this principle in Acts 15. The purpose of, of, of them gathering together is to make a decision about the circumcision question on behalf of the church at large. When they've made their decision, they make it known this is how we are to operate. When they reach this decision, they send out this letter that's not mere pious advice. And they even say the apostles and the elders and the Holy Spirit have determined this. So who is given authority in Christ's body? Uh, Presbyterians would say that it's elders. In the PCA, it should be, it'd be helpful to point out that we have uh, teaching elders and ruling elders. Teaching elders are pastors and ruling elders are are lay elders, but they're of equal status in the, in the Presbyterian Church. That's, that'll be helpful as we go along. Um, so I have four points about the governing authority of elders in Christ's church. Um, elder authority is first derived, it's spiritual, it's shared, and it's visible. Derived, uh, spiritual, shared, and visible. So first... Uh, Elder authority is derived, not deranged, derived, although there are occasions. Um, but sometimes we'll say something like um, our church, like at, at, at my church or at our church, we do it this way. Which usually I think we mean something akin to like, like in my family, like we kind of take ownership of it. We're a part of it. Um, but sometimes we don't, we, we mean, especially I think among past pastors, the church I lead, the church I'm responsible for. But at the end of the day, we have to remember, it's not our church. It's Christ's church. Christ is the head of his church. The first and highest principle of any biblical church government must be the headship of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, uh, 17 and 18, but he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In every passage of Acts, starting with the ascension and coronation of Jesus, I've been asking this question over and over again. What is King Jesus doing in this passage? You probably get sick of me bringing that up every week. What is King Jesus doing in this passage? How is he causing his church to prevail over the strategies of the gates of hell through his spirit and through his people? So how is Christ governing his church? 
Elders are called as shepherds, as overseers, as stewards, as officers, as governors in Christ's church. But it is not an inherent authority. It is a subordinate authority. It is a derived authority. It comes from Christ. Elders are under shepherds called by the head for this task of serving the flock. If you would like to turn in in your Bibles to Acts 20. Acts 20, this is one of the most powerful passages demonstrating this principle of derived authority. Acts 20 and starting in verse 24. Paul says he's called the Ephesian elders to himself to, to exhort them. And he says, but I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from Jesus Uh, from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul received his ministry from Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 28 to apply the same principles to the elders, to the Ephesian elders. Uh, In 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So it's God's church and the elders have been made overseers by the Holy Spirit. So you see how authority is derived and not inherent to the office of elder. Hopefully we can see really the the wisdom and the brilliance of our Lord Jesus in the way he's decided to govern a church. Um, in, the, in the PCA and in other Presbyterian uh, expressions, the elders are elected by the congregation. But the source of their authority is not the congregation who elected them. The source is Jesus Christ. The role of the congregation is not to elect men who are gifted speakers or businessmen or men who will align with their agenda. Uh, the, the elder represents Christ to the congregation. He does not represent the whims of those who elected him. So the role of the congregation is actually to affirm the calling of the elder. The Holy Spirit makes you overseer. So the man who desires the office of overseer must first know the call of God on his life for that responsibility. And any man who's not already shepherding the flock of God by service, by care, by teaching and discipling before they take the office of elder is probably not called to the office of elder. So to be an elder is to be called by Christ and his spirit and confirmed by the congregation to serve the flock as an under shepherd of the great shepherd. So the first principle there is that the elder's authority is derived authority. The second point is similar. The authority of the church elders is spiritual. It's spiritual. I've heard those horror stories about pastors and church leaders getting their fingers into the affairs of other people. If you want to buy a car, you have to talk to us first. But if you want to date this person, you need to talk to us first. Uh, of course, those are spiritual decisions and we can seek wisdom from our elders. Um, but we're not to be uh, 
binding the consciences of people or meddling in their affairs. Um, so I appreciate the what are called the pre- preliminary principles of the PCA, which are really good. You can find them online in the, in the Book of Church Order of all places. Um, they're very good, though. Number seven, there's eight of them. Number seven says, all church authority is only ministerial and declarative. Only ministerial and declarative. I mentioned in Sunday, Sunday school, Burkhoff helps to clarify that church authority deals with matters that are ecclesiastical, not scientific, social, industrial, or political. So church elders have only authority in the spiritual realm. You notice in Acts, there's no council or synod in the book of Acts to settle the question, uh, what are we going to do about government corruption? There's no general assembly to make a declaration about the latest social issue or, or uh, global climate change. <laughs> like that's not the calling of the church. But there are multiple assemblies convened to discuss questions of ministry and of doctrine, convened to seek clarity and consensus on important ministerial and doctrinal questions. How, how would Christ have us to shepherd Christ's flock through spiritual questions of how we relate to God? So there are three ways that I have here that elders of the church are called to exercise authority in spiritual service of the Lord and of the sheep. And the first is to administer the means of grace. Preaching of the word, the Lord's Supper, baptism, to administer the means of grace, which Christ has given as the ordinary means to nourish his sheep. Pastors and elders have the authority of a herald. If a king wishes to send a message, he'll probably not go to every town and roadway in his kingdom and and holler out his own message. He's going to ordain heralds to go forth for him. But the only authority those heralds have is the message of the king. If they divert on their own message, they've lost every bit of their authority as derived from the king. So the primary calling of elders is to ensure that the word of Christ is being heralded accurately and widely. Again, in Acts 15, we see the apostles and elders assembled to seek the will of the Lord in this matter of circumcision. They, they don't seem to have the least interest in what would be the most pragmatic or easy to, easiest to implement um, or, or, or how the world will, will perceive their decisions. They are taking great pains to answer the question, what is the will of the Lord? Second, elders are called to exercise discipline. Uh, I think oftentimes when we think of church discipline, we think of, of censure or excommunication based on grievous sin. You know, the, the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians 5, the big, the big ones. But discipline in the church, as in the home, actually begins with instruction, with teaching, discipleship. You hear the relationship between those words, discipline, discipleship. Occasions for chastisement and serious punishment may arise, but if diligent discipline is undertaken uh, before those issues arise, odds are there will be fewer and farther between. But again, we must apply the principle of the spirituality of church authority here. Um, Preliminary principle 
Uh, number eight says ecclesiastical discipline must be purely moral or spiritual in its object and not attended with civil effects. In other words, the church doesn't have the authority to execute people. The, the church doesn't have the authority to, to jail people. We have the, the uh, option of, of censure or of excommunication in response to sin. And there's a whole other uh, conversation here that's important, but I don't have time to develop, is the issue of the keys of the kingdom. When Christ gives the apostles the keys of the kingdom, so maybe that'll be another another message someday. But in Acts 15, the apostles and elders are engaged in discipline through instruction, both declaring kind of the house rules and providing spirit-guided, authoritative spiritual instruction to the church. Third, the elders are called to organize the church. So administer the means of grace, exercise discipline, and organize the church. I remember reading the story of a teenage boy who who grew up, he's kind of a latchkey kid. He'd go home from school and his parents weren't there. And he'd just, you know, play video games and fend for himself for food. And there's no structure in his home. And he befriended a, a young man at school and started hanging out at his house and eventually actually lived in this home. And... It was a Christian home. It was a structured home. They ate family meals together. There were specific rules. And this young man was reduced to tears because he had never experienced structure in his life. Structure is needed by human beings. Part of the responsibility of elders as overseers is the wide stewardship and organization of the church. The church is a spiritual institution, and different groups kind of emphasize those more than others. It's spiritual and it's institutional. Proper stewardship of the institutional side of the church serves the spiritual health of the church. There are a lot of decisions to be made that that have to be made about things that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak on what time will our church service be should we have chairs or pews Um, who will keep the books where will we meet how will those meetings be conducted what what will be the format of our liturgy Uh, christ has given us principles but what are the specifics of how we will execute those principles all those things need to be wisely administrated and decided So Christ's officers are called to organize and oversee the affairs of the church. They're called to steward the resources of the church. And they're called to govern the church for the benefit of the sheep. So the the Presbyterian's favorite verse, 1 Corinthians 14.40, Let all things be done decently and in order. You see this administrative wisdom being applied in Acts 15. They come to a decision about the circumcision question and, and where has Christ told them how to, to functionally, uh, uh, disseminate this information? Where's that rule? It doesn't exist. They have to use wisdom to decide how best to disseminate this information. They choose to send a circulatory letter as well as wisely to send men from both Jerusalem and Antioch to Antioch to, communi- to communicate their decision. But, but somebody has to manage the administrative issues. And elders are called to the oversight site, the stewardship, uh, the government of the spiritual institution of the church. 
So, uh, elder authority is spiritual. It's not civil. It's not social. But by administering the means of grace, by exercising discipline, and by organizing the spiritual institution, elders keep watch over the souls of the flock of God. The third aspect of elder authority is that it's shared. It's shared. I think this is perhaps the most important, one of the most important, uh, valuable parts of, of this form of church government. Um, that is to say that Christ governs his church through a plurality of elders, through more than one. And these elders are equal in status. So again, in the PCA, we distinguish between teaching and ruling elder based on 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and teaching. So generally the way it works out is teaching elders are, are the pastors, the men who, who are in vocational ministry, Ruling elders are lay elders, but both are equal in status. This is something I love, is that both at Presbyterian, uh, Presbytery and GA, uh, General Assembly, the moderator of the assembly is elected, and each time they're elected, it has to alternate between ruling elder and teaching elder. I think that's that's beautiful. And of course, there will be uh, standout leaders in the church, men who rise as leaders of the church as a whole. And I don't think that's forbidden in Scripture. Peter, James, Silas, Barnabas are all standout leaders. Um, but as far as equality, they're all equal. I, I just think parity of eldership is, is so important, so beautiful. On the floor of uh, General Assembly, you might have somebody very well known. Uh, a Harry Reader, Kevin DeYoung, Ligon Duncan, Palmer Robertson, uh, stand up and, and address the assembly. And they, these are men with big churches, big influence, the men who teach at seminaries and write books. But likewise, I think we're probably the smallest church in the denomination. If we don't have that title, I'd be surprised. But even so, as those big men can go to the mic, I could go to the mic. If if Michael or Brian or Rob were there, they could go to the mic and speak to the issue at hand. That's the parody of elders. In Acts fifteen three, or thirteen rather, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is certainly a man of great influence in the church, but he's not an apostle, and he stands in the midst of the assembly, an assembly filled with apostles, and he speaks with authority. Men, listen to me, he says. And in verse 19, he says, this is my judgment based on scripture. So it seems there's even a parity and equality of authority between the offices of, of apostle and elder. Peter seems to confirm this in 1 Peter 5, 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So Peter sees himself as a fellow elder alongside them. So, in Christ's extraordinary wisdom and grace, the system of government has checks and balances built in. There's no one man who can stand and rise above the others. Uh, there's mutual submission among the plurality of elders. Every elder is an under-shepherd of Christ, but he's also a sheep submitted to the eldership. So, 
Uh, elder authority is shared. And finally, elder authority is visible. What do I mean by visible? I mean that while ecclesiastical authority is spiritual, it does not merely pertain to the invisible church. It pertains to the governance of the visible church as well. I think very often in Western uh, independent-minded sort of uh, non-denominational mindsets, there's a well-meaning appreciation for the unity of the church as a whole, but without any kind of visible organization or representation of that spiritual reality. We, we love each other. We're united to each other in Christ. But as far as church bodies go, we're autonomous and independent. There's sort of a pervasive awareness of the connectional nature in the broader body of Christ. And, and it manifests itself in interesting ways. Because almost no church is completely autonomous. They always seek out some form uh, of, of relationship with other churches. There's always some kind of network or fellowship. So there seems to be an underlying awareness and a desire for connectedness. But, but the line is often drawn at authority. We want connectedness, but leave authority out of it. I think Presbyterianism gives expression to the scripture's example of connection with authority. This is, again, what we see in the New Testament. We see it here in Acts 15. Um, the Westminster Assembly wrote uh, the, the confession, the two catechisms, directory for worship, but they also wrote uh, the form of presbyterial government. It's fascinating. Doesn't it sound fascinating? They make a really astute observation. They, they, they point out the Jerusalem church, singular, had to have consisted of more than one congregation. It was two, there's thousands of people all over the city of Jerusalem. It can't have all worshipped as one congregation. And yet they're called church, singular. They function as a church. The same is true in Antioch, in Ephesus. So there's warrant for authoritative connectedness when we see these regional bodies of churches and elders functioning and making decisions together as a single body. And even as in Acts 15 these distinct regional bodies of, of Antioch and Jerusalem come together to make authoritative decisions for the whole church. So my point in calling the, the elders' authority visible is to say that our unity in Christ as a universal body stretches beyond that mystical union with the whole church in Christ, but it applies as well to the institutional expression of that reality. So there there are many... uh, Parachurch organizations, missions organizations, evangelistic organizations that are doing good work. But I think there's something that seems right about these organizations being under formal church authority. Authority and oversight. Um, The local church can oversee maybe a handful of missionaries or programs, but a single lo- local church can't uh, oversee something like like the uh, 
arms of the, like that we have in the PCA, like are you at Reformed University Fellowship, the uh, university ministry, or uh, Mission to the World, um, a large mission organization, or, or church planting uh, mission to North America? These are global evangelistic ministry efforts, and they should be overseen by the church. And in our case, these missions and evangelistic organizations, uh, their boards are nominated by the General Assembly. Their, their leaders are examined theologically by the assembly. Um, and th- their missionaries are ordained by the local presbyteries. And I, I think there's something right in that. I myself am accountable to a plurality of elders. If I begin to become domineering or controlling, which you know is my personality... Uh, if, I, if I won't listen to the elders anymore, the church has somewhere to go, uh, some recourse. Whereas in an independent congregation, there's nowhere to turn for help when things go south. I have two friends who recently were unjustly fired by their, their elders and their independent church, and they had nowhere to go. It was just done. So when the highest court of appeal is a pastor or a small group of elders, um, Church conflict highlights the value of visible, organized, spiritual government. So, church authority, elder authority is derived, it's spiritual, it's shared, and it's visible. I'm going to wrap up here. I know you're disappointed. This is such a fascinating topic. I I actually love polity. I, I could spend like a 52, like a, a year series on this. There's so much to it, and I, I really care about it. Um, it's not always the most exciting, but it does really matter. Um, so I'll leave you with three things I hope you'll take away from this message, whether you agree with, with Presbyterianism or not. I hope, first of all, you have something of a better grasp of what Presbyterianism about is about, maybe just a little bit better than you did before. Second, I hope you see that wherever you land on the issue, church government is vitally important for the spiritual health and well-being of the church. Uh, we, we should take an interest in it. If we can get excited and engrossed in the American system of government, how much more should we be interested in our own church government as members of Christ's kingdom? So it's important. We should take interest. And third, I hope you see, above all, that Jesus is exceedingly wise. Jesus is, is exceedingly wise. All glory to the King, the head of the body, the church. Amen.